Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the darkest farm side keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing paper? Swinging your tools the more you gave up. Call us the tricks of your trade. Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed. Does the bill to pay you late and your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter. Don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade. Morning, everyone. I wanted to jump in today to talk to you about what your contract sum can tell you about your risk profile. So I've been having some really interesting conversations with a couple of tier one subbies lately who seem by and large to feel a little bit insulated from some of the crazy stuff that goes on in the industry because of their sheer size and because of the clientele that they deal with. And I've also had some really interesting conversations with some smaller subbies who have openly said to me, oh, Michelle, you must think I'm small fry because we just deal in sort of like the 150 to 500K contracts. And you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised about what the differences are in terms of the risk profile that comes with your average contract sum. So one of the things that I love to say uh, on social media all the time is your contract sum is the one thing that will make zero difference about what the risk is inside your contract. And there are so many subcontractors out there who I see commonly just not bothering to review their $30,000 contracts and or less and they're just going look we do $430,000 contracts a year Michelle how am I supposed to review this many contracts and look there are ways to get around it but from a systematic approach you really need to have a strategy and go into it knowing what to look for and what some of the risks are likely to be in that arena of contracting likewise with the tier one subcontractors the problems that they have are exponentially bigger and are potentially business sinking problems. So while they might feel insulated from some of the crazy that happens out there, the really big subcontractors are quite susceptible to death by growth or death by very big tidal wave of problem. And that in a big way comes from them working on very big contracts that go for very long durations with the same clients again and again. So what I did, I do this with our Subbies Toolbox members when we onboard them. And we do this little contract risk profile um, that I like to talk to them about where they're working in, in the industry and where most of their contracts are that they're signing. And then what administratively we like to batten down the hatches on when they're working in those types of areas. And I thought it would be a really useful thing just to share because I know we do a lot of webinars and training on this stuff, but sometimes it's hard to get you guys to register and then turn up. So I thought, look, if I go live on socials and show you guys this, um, then perhaps somebody will get something out of it. So I'm, you will all know if you've been to my webinars how goofy I am with the tech. So bear with me, guys, but I'm going to share my screen with you um, to show you this contract risk profile that we do with our clients. So you can see here, I'm in Canva, love, love, love Canva. So um, in Canva, you can make these little graphs and they're so easy to use. For a lawyer who does not do maths, uh, this is a really good way um, to be able to still visualise and see the impacts that you can have in certain arenas of the contracting world without um, needing to do the maths. So I'm going to jump right in. So if you're doing contracts less than 30 grand and but you do hundreds of them. And this is where I'm talking to these people who are doing the piecemeal little bespoke bits of work where you've got to come along and you've got to get um, in and out as fast as possible. 
the things that are likely to go wrong for you in your contracts is that you might be disposable because it's such a small amount and the amount of your entire contract sum is not worth debt recovering financially. So the, the money doesn't stack up there. If you don't get paid um, in this in this arena here, the value of debt recovery or the cost of debt recovery will far, far outweigh what you're trying to recover there. Um, there's also really slim margins at that end of the chain. So when you have a problem, you don't make any money at all. Uh, so look, jobs typically start pretty late as well. And the risk is all still in there with these contracts with the liquidated damages. I'm sure you've all seen them when you get given a $30,000 contract. We had a client recently got given a $30,000 contract for a bespoke little piece of work. Um, there was a parent company guarantee, a supplier guarantee warranty deed in there. Um, there was retentions on $30,000. I mean, we're talking about $750 for 2.5% retention. And the admin involved in holding that much retention is just not proportionate or even worth somebody's time to be able to look after it. So um, you should be able to avoid retentions at that end of the chain. And if you can avoid the retentions, I strongly recommend you do because it's likely that the retentions could be pretty close to what your profit margin is. Um, if you have to remobilize at this end of the contract chain, that can be all of your money gone. So if you have to come back in the DLP to do some kind of defect rectification, you'd want to have a really good margin in your work at this, at this end of the contracting chain. So 30K to 75,000, this is where we start to um, see people having to walk away from their entire contract sum and their retention because the builders will typically make you have retention for anything over $30,000 contract. Um, but the thing is, you usually in and out quickly enough that the builder still sees you as disposable. And the builder also knows that if you are, maybe you're spanning two months when you're in the thirty dollars to $75,000 worth of work, depending on what your trade is, you might have to go away and come back or do something. But if you do all of your work in one month, that's pretty high risk that uh, you could lose your entire contract sum if the builder battens down the hatches and decides not to pay you at all. So uh, this is sort of the area where we, we see a lot of people walk away from their money because it's not enough money that it will sink their business entirely if they walk away and they can get more jobs just like that one just around the corner. So um, it's not going to be cost effective for you to debt recover at this end of the end of the contract chain still. So you'll be looking at this going, well, this is really unfair that I'm being ripped off my entire contract sum, but that's the money grab there. It's actually a work in progress is where the builders will look at it and go, well, we can not pay this person and they might get very upset, but if we've got some way to get away with doing it, um, then they're going to try it on if they think you're disposable, particularly if they're in financial distress. Bear in mind when I talk about these things, I talk about it as if all builders do this stuff. Not all builders do this stuff. And clearly you guys have got profitable businesses out there and you guys are doing just fine most of the time. But this is where we see the risk in terms of being able to debt recover and the contract risk being disproportionate to the value of the contract sum. So in your mind, you're thinking any contract less than 100 grand, I shouldn't be signing up to liquidated damages of 10 grand a day. But the builder will draft the contract in exactly the same way for every trade. And if you get a minor works, that's great. But oftentimes we don't see you get a minor works. Oftentimes we see you get a design and construct contract, even if you're not designing anything and you get tipped into all of all of the problems and all of the um, big, scary clauses as well. 
So when you start to get into the 75,000 to 500K, so this is a huge bracket here, right? And this is just, this profile is just based on where this particular client is doing most of their work. So they're doing most of their work, um, 75,000 to 150K. And so these are the types of things we're talking to them about. You can see here, they do 19 of those jobs, 12 in the 150 to 500K. So this is where you'll start to nest a lot of retentions across tiny little jobs. And this is what I talk about with invisible dragon eggs that will hatch and potentially bite you in the bottom, but also where you've got cross-contract set-off clauses. So you might do, um, you know, if this person is doing 19 jobs and in the 75 to 150K range and then 150 to 500, they're doing 12 jobs and 80% of their work comes from 20% of their customers, if they have a problem with one of their biggest customers and they've nested 20 jobs with that customer, over the 12 month period prior, it's quite possible that they, the builder will use the cross contract set off clause to gobble up their attention on all of the jobs. And while it might be cost effective in this arena for you to be able to debt recover uh, for your work in progress, you, you won't be able to take an adjudication on all of your historical jobs for the retention amounts because the retention is going to be minuscule. It really won't be worth it. I think I worked it out here. Um, retentions will be less than sort of seven and a half thousand dollars if you're going to be looking at um, recovering retentions in this arena here. So that's based on two and a half percent retention. And guys, obviously, it's not a neat science because there's a range of seventy five thousand dollars to one million dollar contracts there. So individually, these amounts are not viable for debt recovery. But the other thing that happens in this arena is that you have to get in and do all of the work that you would normally do in one of these big jobs but you've got a shorter time frame. And one of the first things I learned as a builder CA is that when you're green and you're first put into um, the bullpen with the other CAs, you usually get the really short, low value projects that are out, the, out in the sticks, like really regional, faraway jobs. And you have to look after those. And the problem with that is that you still have to let all of the trades within that short program. So it's not as if you're doing less work for these smaller jobs. And I know working with subcontractors, that's true for you guys too. You have to still do all of the work required to be able to deliver the job in that shorter amount of time. So where these bigger guys might be sitting there going, okay, well, look, we're working for tier ones and we've got EBAs and all these types of fancy things. Yes, they have other pressures, um, but the speed at which they need to be on the ball and then the likelihood they're going to be ripped off is actually much higher in this arena here. And the reason it's much higher is because you will likely be relatively disposable, smaller value uh, contracts, unless of course you're a unicorn trade. If you're a unicorn trade, say for example, we have a beautiful client down the Gold Coast who is a water fountain designer and he's an artist. Nobody else can do what he does. And he gets specified at head contract level. This guy's a unicorn. He can pretty much say, I want this type of contract and you'll write this in there. Or he could give them his contract if, if he so desired. Um, but unless you're one of those people and you're working in this arena of anywhere between 75K to $1 million, uh, it's quite likely that you're going to have to be flogging your extensions of time every single notice of delay needs to be given. You're going to be struggling to get paid variations. So the budgets will always be likely discounted or very carefully measured and uh, prescribed in tenders 
for builders with those types of trades. And if you're asking for more money than they've got in the budget, I'm sorry, but they're probably going to try and rip you off there. And this is where we will see builders who will try to counter variation costs by just tacking some liquidated damages onto the end of your contract. So very admin heavy, very time heavy, and uh, in a shorter period of time. So it's almost as if when you get into business and you start out, you've got this nice little area where you can get in and get out and not have retention and um, just going to make your money. And maybe your margins are higher because your contract sums are much lower. But once you get into this area, it is so tempting once you get a six-figure contract to discount it because you think you're going to have enough revenue to be able to carry the cost of the job as you keep going. But please bear in mind, your contract terms will still have all the teeth. So um, look, two and a half retentions on a $1 million contract is 12 and a half grand. So if it's in the DLP and you're trying to debt recover your retentions, that's one thing. It's not going to be cost effective, but that's never the way it works. It's always the final claim. The builder will try to rip you off on the final claim or short pay your final claim. So um, the other thing to mention too is when you get to 1 million and you have that six-figure contract, there's like this little switch that goes off in the builder's contracts administrator's mind that, hey, you're playing with the big dogs now. You have a big contract. Like this is a valuable contract that we're letting here and you need to sign up to all of the stuff. You need to be able to stand by your work. And this is where you'll start to get gaslit and they'll say to you, look, why do you want to change that clause? Are you not going to perform? You know, and they'll start to use the whole leverage of well this is a big contract I might give it to your competitor and you're going to start thinking well I want that million dollars in revenue like it took me a lot of effort to get that on our books so I want it I want to keep it there so you need to bear in mind that when you start to hit the six figures don't get the big shiny contract syndrome and just sign up to any terms at all because things start to get a little bit of a different shift gears in that arena and so these tier one subbies that are saying to me look Michelle you know we're special we need extra special reinforcements and whatnot with our contract admin systems. Yes, my friend, you do. And that is because the time that you are under contract with your client is exponentially longer, which means there is longer time period for things to go wrong or for them to have problems in their own house. Um, and it may not even relate to your trade. If they have problems on the project that are unrelated to your trade, but you're the one that they can pick on, to be able to get some money back and if they don't like you or if they think you're disposable then that's where you will start to see these things come into play so um, a lot of tier one subbies talk about how tier one built they have such good relationships with the staff in the tier one building companies something i want to let you in on about that there's two things i truly believe about tier one builders if you think you have a relationship with a tier one builder that relationship only exists because they feel like they have you under control. And let me tell you why. When you're a staffer in a tier one building company, your job is so fickle. You can be made redundant or sacked or replaced at the drop of a hat because you're typically being paid more than the fair work threshold for unfair dismissal. And it's typically easy to get rid of those people. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that it's not inconvenient, particularly from an admin perspective, but if you've got a commercial manager or a project manager or a contracts administrator who is driving a two-year project, you need to pick it as quickly as possible if that person 
is working for the subbies and not working for you. So when you see those staff go tier one, want to work for the big shiny builder, their life is in the building company. It's unlikely they will ever go out on their own and have their own building company. So you're dealing with a different type of person whose loyalties lie with their employer. And the only reason that they have you like this is because they feel like they have you under control. And if they didn't feel like they had all of the budgets and all of those things under control, um, they wouldn't be trusting you. So you need to keep that in mind. I, I firmly believe that whilst you may have 5% of real relationships in this business, almost always it's because your requirements or your needs are aligned or they feel like they have you under control. So um, it, it's a sad thing to have to say, and I'm, I'm sorry that there will be people out there who will probably get very offended at me saying that, but I've seen quite a lot of this now. And the other thing is when people are in a hierarchy inside a tier one builder, not only do they adopt the ego of their own role and their own power, they also adopt the ego of the company. You guys all know what I'm talking about. Like these guys who are like, I work for this company and, and that it, it embodies their identity in a way and it gives them confidence. And that's a dangerous thing because if they're driven by that type of um, reward in their career, then your business, bear in mind these people have never worked a day in business in their life, many of them, um, but they have control over whether or not you get paid. So back to what's going on with these contracts, right? When you go to sign a contract anywhere above six figures, but particularly when you get into the 10 million plus, if you're signing a contract $10 million plus, there are belts and braces and reinforcements in, the, in that contract in terms of guarantees, indemnities, extra insurance policies. The insurances have got to be for no less than 20 million. You know what I'm talking about. The the clauses and the requirements and the obligations in those contracts is by far more uh, onerous than when you're dealing down here. And rightly so in some ways because you are playing with the big dogs and you've got to get off the porch and sign the contract. Um, but don't think that there's no way for you to negotiate because in a lot of instances, if you are signing contracts for things that aren't in a practical sense going to work, let me give you an example. If you're supplying materials for a $150,000 contract and the supplier is, oh, guys, I don't want to just like put anyone's name out there now that I've said that, but I mean, let, let's think like Colorbond or Blue Scope or, um, you know, any of the big suppliers or the big manufacturers that we widely know that you might supply materials for, it's no way they're signing a supplier's deed of guarantee in favor of the principal, right? If you get to the $10 million arena, that might be the same supplier. It's just that you're putting much, much more of that material onto that job and they're still not going to sign it. So you need to be talking to uh, the builder's contracts administrator and talking to them in a practical sense about why these things just don't work. Now, the other issue that you have when you are signing contracts in excess of $10 million, unless you have got a mega, mega company with like hundreds of staff, it's unlikely that you're going to have more than three or four customers because you'll probably sign two or three uh, contracts per year per customer. And, you know, maybe you get up there and you're, you're turning over 100 million and you've got 10 customers. Well done. 
Um, but when you're looking at the $10 million plus, we've got clients that are signing $25 million contracts as subcontractors. So uh, those guys are definitely playing with the big dogs. They're, so, they're actually doing more under one contract as a subcontractor than many builders do all year with their micro contracts. So those guys are operating at a sophisticated and professional level. So what happens is they start to feel safe in their very big ship, but the problems and the waves that come when you've got to build a business that size are exponentially sort of bigger. And what can happen is if you've got the same customer across multiple jobs and you've signed three or four $25 million contracts with them in the last 12 months, you have got mega money sitting with them with retention. Cross-contract set-off clauses can mean that they can just turn the tap off on your payments across all the jobs. And you're much more likely to do something silly and sign like a director's guarantee in a contract like that or sign up to terms where there might be a requirement for you to sign a director's guarantee that you missed in the fine print. So I just wanted to jump on today. I know this is probably pretty heavy. Um, I wanted to jump on today and talk about what the differences are in terms of with your contracts, what the level of contracts are that you're signing uh, and your average contract sum, what that might actually mean in your business. And it, it does tell you a bit about your risk profile as well. So um, I hope that was helpful. I'd love to know in the comments if you guys find that helpful. If you disagree with me, please tell me. I want to know what you think as well. And if I missed anything and you've got stuff to add, again, let me know. All right, guys, hope you all have a wonderful day and wonderful rest of your week. If you have any questions about what I've talked about on this podcast, feel free to drop me a good old fashioned email at questions at tricksofyourtrade.com.au. If you would like a systematic approach to your contract administration and getting paid, head on over to our website and check out the Subbies toolbox. You won't be disappointed there. And just one last time, our web address is www.tricksofyourtrade.com.au. Are you an Aussie tradie and your paperwork is shady? Do the darkest farm side keep you up late at night? Are you sick of pushing pipes? Swinging your tools the more you gaper? Call us the Tricks of Your Trade! Welcome to the Tricks of Your Trade podcast, where we talk about trade business topics to help you get through business life unscathed. Does the bill to pay you late and your cash flow fluctuates? Do you dread the office work? Can't afford a full-time clerk? Consider working smarter. Don't be a business smarter. Call us the Tricks of Your Trade!